0: In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we welcome you to the All Souls Sermon Podcast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In the gospel, we have just heard the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It's a parable which our Lord directs to his disciples to teach them about what to expect in following him. Today's epistle lesson takes up similar themes and gives us a lens through which to understand the parable in the gospel. We'll get to the epistle in due course. Let's begin by looking at the gospel. It's crucial to understand this parable in its broader context. Jesus gives the parable as part of his response to a question that Peter has asked him. Peter said to Jesus, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Peter wants to know if the cost of discipleship is worth it in the end. He wants to know what's in it for him, what he stands to gain in following Jesus. And in reply to Peter... Jesus speaks of the eschatological reward of discipleship. He assures him that following him in the end will be well worth it. He says, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man shall sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my sake, will receive an hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many that are first will be last, and the last first. So there are great rewards for following Jesus. In the life to come, in the regeneration, the disciples of Jesus will share in the responsibility of exercising judgment, will receive the all-surpassing gift of, of everlasting life. In the words of today's collect, those who mind not earthly things which are passing away will receive things heavenly, things that shall abide. As the scripture says, eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things God has prepared for those that love him. But, notice that while Jesus does assure Peter that following him is well worth the cost. At the same time, he gently calls into question Peter's focus on reward, on what's in it for him. He says, but many that are first will be last, and the last first. It's a gnomic saying, isn't it? It's by no means clear what it means. But at least we can say that it signals a shift in perspective, a reversal of customary expectations. And the parable of the vineyard, immediately following this saying, it strongly suggests that we're meant to understand the parable as an explication of Jesus' mysterious saying about the first being last at the last first. And Jesus says almost as much when At the end of the parable, he repeats that saying in a slightly altered form, almost as if it was the moral of the story. He says, so the last shall be first, and the first last. Well, what are we to make of all of this? Let's look again more closely at the parable. It is, of course, the story of a vineyard owner hiring a series of day laborers to work in his vineyard over the course of a day. The first set he hires at the beginning of the day for an agreed-upon rate of pay, the standard wage for a day's labor, a denarius, or what the King James rather confusingly calls a penny. Three hours later, he hires a second set of day laborers, this time saying to them, whatever is right, I will give you. Notice that he doesn't specify their wages. And again, he does the same thing three more times throughout the course of the day, ending with a final set of laborers that he hires at the 11th hour. They only work one hour. Now, at the end of the workday, they come to receive their pay, and all of them, of course, receive the same amount, one denarius. Again, the standard wage for a full day's labor. Those who worked all day grumble about this, seeing it as unfair. These last have wrought but one hour, they complain thou hast made them equal unto us, who have borne the heat and burden of the day. And to their complaint, the vineyard owner reminds them that this is what they have agreed to, they're getting what they were promised, and at any rate, it's no concern of theirs if he chooses to give to the last as he gave to the first. He asks one of them, is thine eye evil because I am good? That is to say, do you begrudge my generosity? And that's how the parable ends, with this question hanging in the air, with the question of the master's generosity hanging there. And Jesus follows it up by commenting, so the last shall be first and the first last. Now, I think that Jesus intends Peter to see himself in this parable, to identify with that first set of laborers, Peter, after all, among the very first that Jesus called. He has left everything and followed him. And what Jesus is trying to do is, I think, to shift Peter's focus from what he stands to receive to the generosity of the Lord. He's helping him to look beyond the benefits of following Jesus to Jesus himself, to place Jesus firmly at the center of his vision. Jesus makes the same point more emphatically in a passage which closely follows our own. James and John have got their mother, apparently they're too embarrassed to ask themselves, to ask for places of honor and power in Jesus' kingdom. And in response, Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus makes even more explicit the call to disinterested service. Disinterested in the sense of not being concerned with personal advantage, but solely with the goodness of following Jesus with the imitation of Christ, his life of service. True greatness, it's suggested, does not lie in the good things that you can get from being faithful to God, but in conformity to the person of Jesus himself, who comes not to be served, but to serve. All of that brings us to the epistle. I said earlier that, what it, that it gives us a lens through which to understand the gospel. And that lens comes right at the beginning of our passage, where Paul says to the Philippians, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. With these words, you can think of St. Paul giving the response of a mature Christian to the question that Peter had asked. What then will we have? What we will have when we forsake all to follow Christ is nothing less than Christ Himself. Christ Himself will be our reward. Being with Christ, being conformed to His life, is the highest good. As Paul puts it later on in Philippians, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Or again, as the psalmist prays, whom have I in heaven but thee? And having thee, I desire nothing On earth. Or, as the theologian Simon Tugwell puts it, God has nothing to give except himself. In the 12th century, the great monastic reformer Bernard of Clairvaux wrote a beautiful little book called On Loving God. And in it, he has this to say about love. True love, Bernard says, is its own satisfaction. It has its reward, but that reward is the object beloved. For whatever you seem to love, if it is on account of something else, what you do really love is that something else, not the apparent object of desire. One who truly loves God asks no other recompense than God himself. For if he should demand anything else, it would be the prize he loved, and not God. Now, if that is true love of God, how on earth do we get there? Bernard makes the enormously helpful pastoral contribution of distinguishing four degrees of the love of God, four stages of growth, as it were, and how we come to love God truly. They give you a kind of standard by which you can measure your own life, just kind of check on how you're doing. At the beginning, the first stage, Bernard says, is that we love ourselves for our own sake. That is the default mode of fallen human nature. It's purely self-centered, purely self-interested. We begin to love God when we learn to love God for our own sake. That's the second degree, to love God for our own sake. To love God as necessary for our welfare. And we do this when we realize the limits of our own strength and ask God to help us. It's an advance to be sure, but it remains a selfish love. It remains self-interested. The third degree of love is to love God for God's own sake solely because he is God. This is what I've called disinterested love, loving God for himself, not for his benefits, not for anything that we stand to gain from God, but just God himself. Finally, Bernard speaks of the fourth and highest degree of love, which is the degree probably reserved only for the blessed in heaven, when he says, we love God only and supremely, we do not even love ourselves except for God's sake so that he himself is the reward of them that love him, the everlasting reward of an everlasting love. So, these are the four degrees of love that Bernard laid out. To love myself for my own sake, to love God for my own sake, to love God for God's sake, and finally, to love even myself for God's sake. Now, Take these categories and apply them to the gospel, and I think what you can say is that Peter was at that point at the second stage of love. He loved Christ selfishly, self-interestedly. He was interested in what he stood to gain, in what he, uh, what benefits he was going to accrue to him by following Jesus. But Jesus is teaching him to love him with a disinterested love, to ask for no other recompense than Christ himself, to know Christ himself, to be the reward of them that love him, to say, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, of course, our Lord does not speak this parable only to Peter. This is not a theoretical exercise. The gospel is the truth lively word of God that speaks a contemporary word to us. It's addressed to you and to me. He's talking about you. So, how about you? With what degree of love do you love God? Are you more like Peter was in the story, concerned to know what's in it for you? Or are you more like Paul? finding Christ himself to be entirely sufficient? Do you love God for your own sake or for God's sake? How is our Lord calling you to grow in love today? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of All Souls Episcopal Church. For service times and more information, go to allsoulsokc.com. God be with you.